So we sit here today on August 18th, 2018, at the first International Vestibular Rehabilitation Conference in, where are we? Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Illinois. And we sit here with Dr. Susan Herdman. And Dr. Herdman initially received her bachelor's degree in biology from Vassar College, then went on to the University of Pennsylvania to complete her certificate in physical therapy and eventually completed her PhD in anatomy there as well. She completed a postdoc fellowship with the Department of Anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania. Her teaching career has spanned over three decades, and she's been on the faculty at the University of Maryland, Johns Hopkins University, University of Miami, and Emory University. She was the program director for the PT department at Emory, and over her career, she has supervised a number of doctoral and postdoctoral students, as well as being a mentor to many individuals. She's been a member of the NASA Advisory Committee for the Physiologic Effect of the Prolonged Space Travel on the Vestibular System. She's published over 70 articles and written many book chapters. She has also published the Bible, if you will, of vestibular rehabilitation, which is the cornerstone reference for, the, for all vestibular therapists. Mm -hmm. In 1998, she developed the course Vestibular Rehabilitation, a competency-based course, which has run for over 20 years and has had over 4,000 participants. She was the founding chair of the Vestibular Rehab Special Interest Group in 1996 and has served on the nominating committee for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Dr. Herdman was awarded the Excellence in Research Award by the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy in 2000, the Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the APTA in 2001, the John Manley Award for Innovative Clinical Practice by the APTA in 2003, the Marion Williams Research Award in 2009, the service to the Vestibular Rehab SIG um, in 2010, and the Golden Synapse Award for the best journal article in 2011. That was just a snapshot of what was and continues to be an amazing career. But my question for you is let's go back and what made you decide to become a physical therapist? <laughs> Oh, I have to remember that far back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I was a volunteer in our local hospital as um, probably a junior in high school, somewhere, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe even a little sooner. And um, I worked on the floors as a, as a, you know, doing whatever the nurses told me they wanted to do. And one day I was feeding uh, a child who just had... Um, NG tube? No. no. Cleft palate surgery. You Thank go. you. And um, uh, the packing in his mouth had come loose. Some of the sutures had come loose. And so he was crying because it kept flipping back into his throat. And, and so I got the nurses, and they had to call the physician before they could do anything. And now this was a long time ago, so nursing practice has changed a lot since then. But I realized that I did not want to be in a be in a profession where I had to rely that much on the physicians. That that was you know to have to call them to get permission to do what which was obvious needed to be done, you know. So um, the next year I volunteered in the physical therapy department <clears throat> just by chance, and I just loved it, absolutely loved it, and. Um, Bob Ziegenfuss, who was who was the head of the department, was a great mentor. I mean, he let us try different things. He would explain things. 
Um, so it was just a, a, a great experience, mm-hmm. and I've, I've loved it ever since. So how did you become interested in vestibular therapy and vestibular research? <laughs> oh, listen, I, I think... Um, I think I'd have to describe my entire career as a series of, of things that I would label serendipity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, my PhD was primarily looking at recovery of function in patients, uh, or in, in actually animal models with nervous system lesions. Um, and that was what I was primarily interested in doing. And I was at the University of Maryland my then husband was at Johns Hopkins in the neurology department, and so I knew the guys over there. And they kept asking me to see their vestibular patients. And I kept saying, no, I didn't want to do that because I was trying to focus more on research. And um, the physical therapy department decided that they were going to have a faculty practice, which all of us were supposed to be involved in. Now, <clears throat> I wanted just as a side mention here... <laughs> that the all of us must be involved in tended turned out to be just the women because the guys said no and of course nobody pushed them because they were guys i mean life life Mm. is full of things like that but anyway so i said okay i'll do it but if i'm going to do this i'm going to see patients that at least have problems related a little bit to what i'm looking at and so um the guys from hopkins and sent their vestibular patients over to me the first one that i saw was a woman who had had episodes of vertigo for years and, in fact, had been uh, institutionalized at least twice because she would have these episodes and she probably was had reached a point where she was um, exaggerating the symptoms a little bit. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But she would have these episodes and... Uh, and so nobody... But nobody could see anything, <laughs> you know, when she would claim to be so dizzy and falling down and stuff. And finally, she was seen by David Z, who was over at Hopkins, and he sent her to me. She had BPPV, and um, I treated her, and she was fine. And it was like, I was like hooked <laughs> from that very first patient on. It was just such a wonderful feeling that, yeah, that was it. I was really hooked with the whole experience. At the risk of sounding naive, what BPV treatment did you use at that time? You know, I was trying to remember because this was back in the mid '80s, so I must have used Brandaroff. Uh huh. And um, it must have worked. Okay, all <laughs> that's right. all I can yeah. say. But I think part of for her part of the experience was that we all believed that she we believed that there was a real physical problem, mm-hmm. and um, that relieved a lot of her anxiety. And she was she was willing to make herself dizzy by doing his exercises. Um, and it helped. Wow. Now, during that time, there wasn't a lot of treatment strategies. So you yeah. were just sort of using your own knowledge base. Yeah. And then when you went back to the literature, what did you find? Well, in the literature, there really was um, Cawthorn Cooksey mm-hmm. and uh, Brant Dareff exercises. Uh, but the people at Hopkins... And I moved there. I moved there mm-hmm. within the year I was at Hopkins. Um, they were doing research on adaptation in the vestibular system. And so this, um, the group of people who were there, David C. and John Lee, um, Tim Hain, Ron Tusa, um, and now myself and some otolaryngologists, we would meet every Friday and talk about 
these patients and what we could do. And David Z suggested that I take a look at maybe taking some of the things they did for adaptation and use it. Um, so I did that, and then also is reading his article on eye movements in patients with BPP with I'm sorry with bilateral vestibular deficits, and the strategies that they use to try to see clearly. And he mm-hmm. described some that led eventually to some of the exercises we do for to induce substitution. So it's really by working with them that these exercises came into being. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't out of a frustration for what was it? Because we often hear that people go into a certain area because they were frustrated over the lack of knowledge. But you had some of the experts at that time yeah. access to them, and so it was more of a positive of let's see what else we can yeah, do. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't ever remember being frustrated by a lack of exercises because we were just developing them mm-hmm. as we went. So it was very exciting. Hmm. So what was your first research uh, study. <laughs> oh dear. My very first or the first well, one related to vestibular? How about let's go with Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, Almost we knew, we knew, well, actually it's one I never finished. Okay, mm-hmm. we knew that the, um, uh, the air signals necessary to induce adaptation of the vestibular ocular system. And so I was trying to develop a way of inducing adaptation in the vestibular spinal system. And uh, the idea was to have a person standing on a force platform and suddenly move the, visu- the, the, the visual world, which would be uh, just straight up and down, which would be a retinal slip error. Mm-hmm. That, that movement is known to induce forward sway or backward sway, depending on whether you go up or down, and that we could use that as a stimulus to produce adaptation. So it's, I, I think it's still a fascinating idea. I don't think anybody's ever done it. Um, my work evolved f- instead of in that direction, which was okay because this was a, um, what was it, career development award. So it was fine that I went off track for that and did more with the development of the exercises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was the first one that I didn't finish. <laughs> and then the first one I did finish was proving the effic- showing the efficacy of vestibular exercises in patients. So were there other people developing studies in balance that influenced you at that time or you collaborated with? Absolutely. I mean, besides the people at Hopkins, I mean, um, I, remember going, <laughs> I remember going out to Faye Horak's lab. And, and uh, she, just it was a great experience. She's, she is... A wonderful, um, uh, welcoming person who would share, just share whatever. She would share whatever information she had. Um, and we sat at one point, we were in a conference, and they were talking about this patient <laughs> who um, had central problems and, you know, what could they do or not do. And I remember sitting there and thinking, how do they know the patient has central problems? <laughs> I mean, being that naive about this is, and and then finally realizing, oh, it's because they did this and they did this, and she showed, you know, just the way any patient with central deficit would show problems. But I just was so lost. They were so far more ahead of my thinking at that point. Mm. That was fun. So she literally said, oh, are there any articles that you would like? Here's here's where we keep all the articles we use in rehab. Help yourself. Literally, just help yourself. And I did. So she was one, uh, very, very influential early on. And then David Krebs um, and his research, I didn't know David as well then. I knew him. Um, 
but his research on patients with bilateral vestibular hypofunction and treatment. So they, they had early effect influences on me. And then one day I went to see, um, it must have been the Academy of, uh, it must have been uh, otolaryngology uh, head neck surgery. He was presenting the Epley maneuver. And um, so it, he didn't show any pictures, which made it really difficult to understand what it was. But I went back and tried, you know, we talked about and tried to do what I thought he was saying. And I was close. I wasn't exact, exactly right. But so we started using his maneuver and the Samant maneuver, the laboratory maneuver. Um, so that would be in the early 1990s. Yeah. So were there anything going on in your own research or in others that were real game changers for you as far as, you know, maybe producing a paradigm shift in how you were approaching the patient with vestibular disorders? Hmm. I mean, there is now. <laughs> I mean, look at Michael Schubert's work um, on incremental training and, um, and then also... Um, the concept of only trying to produce adaptation in the direction of the deficit rather than both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's phenomenal work. And I think, yeah, we can modify our exercises to do that. They'll be more efficient and get better results in patients. So yeah, not not so much early in my career though. I'll have to think about it, but that nothing comes to mind immediately. Yeah. So when you moved to Emory, Mm -hmm. uh, you worked with several postdocs. I can think of Michael Schubert, <laughs> Michael Schubert. Uh, Courtney Hall, Courtney, yeah. um, Rick Lynn Daniel. Rick was at, while well, I was at Hopkins. Yeah. Oh, was he? That's yeah. right, he was at yeah. Hopkins. Yeah. So I'm sure you followed their careers, or if there's any others. <laughs> what do you think is promising in their, their research? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, Michael, obviously, I've already talked about some of the work they're, that they're mm -hmm. doing. It, his work is so thoughtful and so insightful in terms of how you take something that they're using in basic science and then translating it to help us in the clinical practice mm -hmm. that it's it's marvelous i mean he's he is i often tell people you know follow his work follow his papers look him up look his name up and get his papers cuz they they are really telling us how we can change our exercises you know and maybe that will help us solve the the problem of the 10% of the patients with unilateral vestibular hypofunction that don't get better, you know, and with bilateral patients, it's even more. So, and that's something that is important to solve. Um, Courtney's work, she's doing a lot in, uh, with patients with, with, who are older and trying to develop um, uh, ways that they can do exercises and be monitored for those exercises. Uh, when they can't come in the clinic very frequently. So they can do them at home um, and monitor how their compliance or how they're actually performing the exercise, what exercises might make it more interesting for them. Uh, and that's a very practical approach to what we need. Uh, so yeah, I enjoy watching hers. Rick, <laughs> Rick is, um, He's such a phenomenal teacher that I always learn something when I listen to him lecture. <laughs> you know, he's just amazing. Not that the others aren't good teachers, but he's amazing. Um, the one thing that he's still slowly gathering data on, it's very difficult the way um, uh, clinical practice is set up now in his environment, uh, is trying to, de to determine whether some exercises might be better than others. 
Mm. So actually comparing um, habituation to adaptation to uh, substitution exercises. So, Do you, is there any area that you feel like we need more research in that like a place that you'd like to focus in on and hone, hone in on oh a little gosh. bit more? I mean, those three have great great projects that they're working on, but do you have opinion on where you think vestibular research should go? Well, I really think it's important to solve this problem of why some patients don't get better. Mm. And um, I think there are some answers that are out there now that weren't there five or 10 years ago, like 3PD as a, as a diagnosis and how do you manage that? And of course they're developing management strategies, including exercises for those patients. I think that's very important, and I'm looking forward to seeing controlled trials on that because mm-hmm. that we really need those in order to definitively know whether it's the exercise or just the attention of the therapist or all the other placebo effects that can occur in a study uh, in, in, in rehab, actually. Um, so that's one. Um, I think that, uh, I, I don't know that this is something that we can do anything about now, but I think we as therapists need to start paying more attention and becoming involved in um, patients who are going to be getting vestibular implants uh, because they still need rehab, but it may be different than what we've been doing. Mm. So um, that would be another area. And then further down the line, when they, when they really um, develop mechanisms for, for um, gene therapy on patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. thought about that. So the course, the competency course, <laughs> is um, uh, you're very well known for that, and it's influenced a lot of uh, vestibular therapists, as evidenced by the number of people that have attended the course. So what was that inspiration, and how has the course evolved over the time? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's so different now than what it was the first year we did it, as some people know. (laughs) Um, um, The inspiration was really the fact that there were people out there lecturing, but nobody was, and they would demonstrate skills, but nobody was actually teaching the skills, and the only way you can teach the skill is to um, not only not just have the, pay, per, the participants do it, but test them on it so that they really work hard to try to um, incorporate that into um, the tools that they can use. So that was the idea behind the competency course, was mm-hmm. to put something together like that. Uh, literally sat down at um, uh, the Association for Research and Otolaryngology meeting in, I think, it was in, no, it was in Florida that year. It's now moved to the other side of Florida, but we were, you know, just outside on a beautiful day. And um, who was there? Sue Whitney and Rick Daniel, And I think Michael Schubert was there. And Helen Cohen. Anyway, we were just sitting down talking. Oh, and Neil Shepard. And I was asking mm-hmm. them, you know, what they thought about this. And it, it blossomed out of that. So the next year, we had the course. And um, I hadn't really thought about the impact of the number of, of participants on what we had planned to do in the course, to have labs where everybody learned the techniques, but then competencies, competencies that they had to demonstrate so we could check them off on the competencies. 
That was the biggest flaw. That was one. And the other was um, we had an enormous response of people who wanted to take this course. And so the numbers grew and grew until we had 260 people, but only about six faculty. <laughs> yeah. Oops. And the faculty were being followed into the bathrooms and into the into the hotel rooms people begging them to test them on this set and i hadn't i thought oh people just get in the line and we'll just go through them one well i hadn't really thought about how long it takes to test someone in let's see probably three different methods of treating bppv right at that time mm-hmm. you know or i hadn't i hadn't calculated any of that so the first year was Absolute shambles. Um, I think people learned a lot. I, I still hear that people who got through the course liked it, but they said it was very hard. And then the last mistake I made in that was we graded the exams before students left. So, <clears throat> so we, you know, we we hand graded all their exams. So we, when we handed out um, an envelope to them at the end, it either had in it a letter saying congratulations and a certificate showing that they passed the course, or it had a letter saying, we're very sorry, but we had people crying. (laughs) Oh, Oh, it was awful. It was really awful. So so the next year it was, okay, we're going to limit to this number of people, and we'll have um, this many faculty, and we will schedule the competencies <laughs> at night by groups, and uh, and we won't hand the exams out, <laughs> and we will give people who don't pass an exam the opportunity to retake it. And we did that in the first year, but we hadn't announced that, mm-hmm. so that they could retake it. And that be- it was still rough the second year, but it was much much better, <laughs> much better. <laughs> we after the first year. We went back to, to my house. I lived in Coral Gables, and the, and the course was in Miami. And, and Ron and I held a party for all the faculty, and there were 12 people there. Um, I'm pretty sure I included my two doctoral students at that point, and I had invited a couple extra people in to teach and stuff to help with the labs. And I had 12 bottles of champagne, and we went through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and then some. <laughs> so, Yeah. But now, the, I mean, besides the mechanism for the course, um, we keep updating the course content. Mm. So it's very definitely based on evidence. Um, and, and we do present things where there isn't evidence, but we try to make sure that there's, they know that um, because it's out there. I mean, so there are treatments for anterior canal BPPV, and a year or two ago there wasn't enough evidence to say, well, this really works or not, but we would present it and give them, and then now there's evidence. So, mm-hmm. you know, we try to, to keep it as up-to-date as possible. Well, so. well, one thing we didn't mention in your introduction is that in 2016, you were the Anne Shumway Cook Translation <laughs> Research <laughs> to Practice Award yeah. winner and gave a lecture at CSM that year, which was very well attended, if yeah. I recall. That was fun. So I was nervous for that one. Were you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Heck, yes. All those people out there who, yeah, oh yes. <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard to lecture to your peers, and that was the, my audience was filled with peers. Yes. So, yeah, I was nervous. The the group that teaches for the competency course, mm-hmm. you, all of your faculty. It's over the years. My observation is that it's become pretty tight and pretty um, supportive group. Mm-hmm. 
Um, can you speak to that and what that means to you? Oh yeah, they're my they're my second family. They're, it's just a wonderful group of people. So some of the people in there I've known because they've been my students, mm -hmm. like Michael Schubert and Jeff Hoder was on the faculty at Emory when I was teaching. I recruited him to Emory. So I've known people through various ways and others through through teaching with them, like Tara Denham and, and Neil Shepard. Um, we bring new people in, um, and depending on how many, especially depending on how many people are taking the course. Uh, so we'll bring new people in, and that's always fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but, the, but yes, uh, very, very close. We like to do things um, outside of the course when we can. Um, very supportive. So I remember um, I got diagnosed with breast cancer in two years ago, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I let everybody know and um, got emails back. But one email, I got a phone call from Laura Morris. And Laura had said she saw her email while she and her family were driving to a vacation point. And she made her husband stop the car so she could call me on the phone to talk to me about this and to give me support. And it's that kind of reaction. It's just like, it's so wonderful. I mean, how lucky I've been to have these people in my lives. And that's mm. the support they give to each other all the time. Mm. Yeah, it's really neat. Well, one thing that's related to the competency course mm. is that you've been um, really supportive of developing a clinical vestibular specialist type mm -hmm. of, um, pos uh, not position, um, I hesitate to use certification, but a specialist. A certified a clinical specialist. Clini so thank yeah. you, a certified yeah. clinical specialist. So I understand there's been some pushback to that, mm -hmm. but why do you think that's so important? Um, I, th I think you see a lot of people out there. There's a tremendous in, uh, excitement about vestibular rehab, and, and I think one of the reasons is it's, it's an area in which we can literally take someone who is unable to function in their life to being able to function completely in their life. And that's very different than someone who has a stroke, for instance, who you can make amazing improvements in, but they're still gonna have motor problems or gait problems and balance problems, you know, et cetera. So it's a very, vestibular rehabilitation and the patients that we get involved in, for the most part, are ones that we can totally change their lives around. Um, so it's a very attractive part of physical therapy. Uh, so there are a lot of people doing it, and um, some of them do it better than others. And I think it's really important to be able to say, this group of people are the ones that will do it better than others. And the way of doing that is to have a clinical specialty through the American Physical Therapy Association. Uh, so we've been trying to establish that. Yes, we've gotten pushback on it. Uh, from the Board of Physical Therapy Clinical Specialists. Um, but we're still, we're still in the process, so we'll see what happens with it. I'm hopeful. <laughs> I don't know. You'll have, to, you'll have to look in the future to see what happens with that eventually. And how do you think that's going to change clinical practice? Well, what do you expect or predict? I think that um, there will be a growing group of people who become clinical specialists. I hope so. Through, through this organization, because I think that um, 
the requirements to become a clinical specialist and to uh, maintain your specialty uh, qualifications are such that it people have to stay up to date on the literature. They have to be seeing patients. Um, they have to know a body of knowledge. They're tested on the body of knowledge that they have. And that's not seen in any of the other groups who are offering courses um, and saying, oh, you can say you're a specialist now in vestibular rehab. Mm -hmm. uh, they, don't, they don't have that stringent, stringent um, requirements that are, that are so important. So I think patients will get better care. And I think the mechanism of having a clinical specialty is one where um, a lot of people can do it. So, you know, the other options will do a residency and make sure there's some vestibular content or eventually maybe a fellowship in vestibular rehab. That's only going to put out across the country 10, 12 people a year. Mm. We're talking about 40% of every person over the age of 65 having a vestibular problem at some time. That's a huge number of people. A huge number. Even in this city, we have over 6,000 new cases of BPPV. This Atlanta, I'm not, mm -hmm. not Chicago, but Atlanta. Over 6,000 new cases of BPPV every year. And if those people deserve to be treated correctly. Physicians need to know who they should send those patients to. So that's what I see a clinical specialty doing. Mm. One way you've been pivotal in supporting people who, uh, like vestibular rehabilitation, is in the formation of the vestibular rehab SIG special interest group back in 1996 was the first meeting, yeah. I remember it well. And uh, uh, what was that inspiration? How did you come up with that idea? <laughs> well, let me backtrack maybe to the year before that and, and say that I can remember at one of the combined section meetings saying, oh, anybody who's interested in vestibular rehab, let's just go up to my room and we'll get some food and some drinks and we'll talk about it and talk about vestibular rehab. So that was a little group of eight or nine people who came up and just had a wonderful time talking about it. So that preceded it. But the real inspiration for the vestibular sig was Susan Whitney. Oh, <laughs> Sue, Sue, Whitney, Sue Whitney called me up and said, I think we should do this and you should be the first chair. Okay. And that That's was great. it. Yeah, so I don't can take credit for s establishing that, only being the first chair of it. Yeah. Well, it's significantly <clears throat> grown and been a, oh a reason why so many people come to CSM. Yeah. Is to, to participate in some of the educational opportunities mm -hmm. as well as the networking through the SIG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Her recruiting efforts haven't changed at all. No, she just said, you should do this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you think is something you're most proud of when you're looking back on all of Everything? that? Everything? Oh, my students. Okay. Without question. Yeah. I mean, Ricklin Daniel and Michael Schubert, Courtney Hall, Britta Smith, and <laughs> some of the other people who've taken, I mean, without question, the students. Um it just, yeah, it's, it just excites me no end it's to, to see them, what they're doing. Yeah, my family. Hmm. So I understand that years ago you interviewed Berta Bobath. I did. Tell us Both about that. Both of them. That. Both of them. I was at the University of Maryland, and they used to come in and do a seminar. Um, and they would vi they had a they had a film studio studio in the University of Maryland's physical therapy program, mm. and they would videotape them. And so they thought, oh, this would be good. Let's videotape them. They're wonderful people. Doctor and Mrs. Bobeth were just incredible. And watching her treat a patient, a baby, 
her hands were magical. You know, it just, just what she could do and change the alignment and how the flexibility of the child, and it was just incredible to watch. So we did a video and I had a chance to talk to them ahead of time, which was good. And of course I didn't agree with everything Dr. Dr. Bobeth in particular said. He developed all the theories because he saw what his wife was doing. She came first, which uh, was neat. Oh. Um, and so we talked about the physiology and things like that. It was a great experience. Uh, they're lovely people. They were, sorry, they're not, they're now deceased, but they were wonderful people. Yeah. So that's how that happened. So you're now retired. I am. I hear you're enjoying your retirement. I love being retired. And you've uh, developed a passion with show dogs. I do. I have three Australian shepherds and one Australian cattle dog. Well, she's a, a mix. Um, they're all my pets. You have to understand they're all spoiled little brats. But, um, but um, the Australian shepherds, uh, two of them have been being shown in confirmation. Uh, one, my, my little girl, who's now seven, uh, she was the first Australian shepherd that I got. Um, she got her championship as an intact dog. I don't know if you know the difference. So they're mm. intact dogs. That, that means some, a dog that can be bred, and mm. an altered dog is one who can't. Um, and, uh, and then uh, I did eventually have her um, altered. Spade, I guess, is what they use for, for females. It's confusing to me. Anyway, um, so I so she's been shown as an altered dog since then, and she has just been phenomenal. She's been this number two altered dog in the country one year, and you know goes to to our national specialty show and has won you know awards there and stuff. It's been marvelous. The second dog I have is a, a younger guy. He's three. And um, he did really well last year in our national specialty. He finished his title and took winner's dog and best of winners. And so he's going to be shown a lot in, next year because what, what you do is you can campaign them, mm -hmm. which means showing them a lot, <laughs> um, to get into uh, a special competition at nationals. Um, you're probably, this is probably too much. See, you push the button on what my excite passion is yeah, now. There you go. Get into competition at nationals, what's called finals, which are the top 30 dogs in the country. Um, there's one for altered and one for intact. And he will be in the altered class. And uh, so we're going to campaign him. But he... Yeah, he's in finals this year just because he did well without campaigning him. And uh, Maggie, that's my little girl who's now retired, um, her sister um, is in finals as well. They've both done very, very well. So, and then, my, then Connor is my youngest Australian Shepherd, and I'm, I'm actually competing with him in obedience competition. <laughs> <laughs> And so who's more obedient? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's funny because neither of us have done it, and it's definitely, it, you definitely have to, um, yeah, you definitely have to train a dog to be obedient. <laughs> they have to pay attention to you. Mm. And I'm what they call a soft handler, so I don't want to yell at them too much or, you know, anything like that. So sometimes they don't pay attention, <laughs> and that's what he's like. But he's such a, he's just a lovely, lovely boy. And my fourth dog, I, I show her in Rally. So it's Rally's a, a healing competition, on leash, mostly on leash, uh, at my level at least. <laughs> and it's just fun. It, new people and new places mm. to go, and the dogs are wonderful. And I sometimes go to uh, 
Um, Australian Shepherds and Australian Cattle Dogs, of course, are herding dogs. And in Georgia, they have a number of herding uh, shows all mm. year round. And I will go to those and watch them do what they are supposed to do, which is herd cattle and sheep. And one, one of the fun, fun ones to watch is <clears throat> it's a competition where they have to herd ducks. <laughs> it's just it is a it's a riot i've i've seen them in the middle of the competition they and they can't push ducks the same way they do cattle and sheep because they're smaller and more fragile <clears throat> excuse me and um they have to move them along in you know take them out of a pen move them here make them go over a bridge make them go under a bridge move them into some sort of a uh, um, i don't know what you call it Hmm. Like a gully, or yeah, but yeah, where they where what they simulating them getting shots, so they a holding pen, oh, but it's yeah. narrow, so the idea that then you can give them all shots and stuff, and it's just really fun to watch. It's just, they're amazing, so yeah, I like I just like going. How did you get involved with that? Like, uh, what was what sparked all of this? It's been a long <clears throat> time, or it's been. Maggie is seven, it's been four and a half years, okay. so not long. No. So I've had dogs for a number of years, and I'd gotten, um, sorry, that's my watch keeps clicking on the glass of the table. Um, so I had two dogs, uh, Fox, who is what, what they call one of my heart dogs. Um, he's just beautiful and wonderful, and I loved him dearly. I love all my dogs, but... And then Molly, who is the cattle dog, I'd gotten her as a puppy. And Fox died. He was 16, and, you know, it was his time. Um, and so I, but I knew I wanted to get another dog. And I was at a um, farmer's market up in the Georgia mountains one day, and I was talking to a woman who was selling grass-fed beef and, and lamb, because I like getting that too. And I, so I said, she said, oh, you got a little cow dog. And yeah, you know, so. And I told her about Fox and how I wanted another dog. And we're just chatting away. She says, well, I have Australian Shepherds. And uh, she said, I got one for my daughter to show. And my daughter decided she didn't want to show her. So would you like to have her? And that was Maggie. Wow. That was Maggie. Yeah. So we introduced my Molly to her dog. And they were fine. And I had. I had my first Australian Shepherd. Wow. Is that, see, That's serendipity. Crazy. That's yeah. what I mean about serendipity in my life. Just been, or Sue Whitney saying, become the, the chair of the vestibular SIG. I mean, it's all serendipity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? it is. But isn't yeah. that cool? It is. Yeah. How it all sort of pieces together yeah. and the timing was right. Timing was right, yeah. It just, yeah. right place, right time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All fit together. It was amazing, yeah. And so, yeah, and then I got another one, and then I got another one. <laughs> yeah, four is enough. <laughs> so before we conclude, you've got to tell us about the spin doctors. Mm. Oh. <laughs> um, this was a, a way of earning money for the Foundation of Physical Therapy. The spin doctors were uh, Courtney Hall and Jennifer Braswell Christie and myself. And uh, we decided to do a Ironman triathlon as a team and have people support us and we would donate the money to the foundation. And it was great. So Jennifer did the 2.2 mile swim in a lake and then Courtney did the, oh, how long is the bike? It's forever. Um, can't remember the distance. It's either 118 miles or, or more. Um, and then I did the, the um, 22 mile run at the end. Wow. Yeah. 
So it was really fun. I was exhausted. I, obviously, I had to wait till Courtney finished. And there's one part of this course. The first time she went through, I thought, this is great. I only have to wait so many hours till she's back. And, and then she didn't show it. She, she was tired. <laughs> there's one part of the course that has this 11% grade, which is pretty steep mm-hmm. for riding a bike. And it just was wiping people out. Not They weren't having accidents, mm-hmm. but people were walking their bikes yeah. up at the second mm-hmm. time. So, so it was almost dark when I started my run. But it was fun. It was, it was, How much it was great. Did you raise? I don't even know now. Okay. I have no idea. Yeah, but it was just yes, the spin doctor. So that was a great name. Well, they're they're right. both vestibular therapists. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that fit. It's very fitting. Yeah. Before we finish, what would you say to a new graduate? What recommendation yeah. do you have for them? Somebody coming right in onto the profession. Oh my gosh. Um. I would probably one is suggest that they spend time their first place be a general practice and ideally in a hospital so they see lots of different kinds of patients um, a lot I know today a lot of people go right into private practice and I think you lose out on on the richness of all the possibilities in physical therapy there's so much that we do so I'd like to see them do a more general practice first, and then decide what what um, aspect of physical therapy they want to specialize in. Mm. Yeah, and read the literature. <laughs> read, read the literature, the literature. please. <laughs> well, we both thank you very much for spending the time with um, us here, and uh, have really enjoyed our time together. <laughs> thank so thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you for many more years. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It has been fun. Yes, thank you.